Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you uh, again for the opportunity to just share our lives together and, and laugh together. We thank you that uh, you're God of, of joy and uh, grace and love. Um, we deal with another issue today that's very important to us and to many, and we just pray again that you instruct us. In Jesus' name, amen. They say you know you're not spiritual if your Bible has the Gideon emblem embossed on the cover, or you're not spiritual if you think an epistle is the wife of an apostle, or if you think um, the Apostles' Creed is Rocky Balboa's opponent in the movie. They say you're not spiritual if you begin, you're called on to pray and you begin with, now I lay me down to sleep. And I would say that you know you're not spiritual if you doubt your salvation. Because my contention is it is impossible to grow and mature and be a spiritual person if you have doubts about your salvation as many good people do. And so I'd like to talk about assurance as the foundation for Christian growth. And it is a big problem in the church today. Uh, I'm amazed at the number of people I run into who uh, doubt their salvation. Uh, even in my church, I flush them out every now and then, uh, even though I think I know my people very well. But uh, a lot of times it's the young people who are coming up and are rethinking things. Um, I met a man one time at a conference and he, he gave his testimony. He said, I've been a Christian for 15 years and sure of it for one. And I thought that was very sad. 15 years were wasted and, and, and less than he could have been, less than he could have done. Uh, the problem I call, I want to refer to it as ADD, which is assurance deficit disorder. And I don't mean to be making light of um, attention deficit disorder at all. It's just an easy way to, think, to refer to it. Um, but some of the effects of ADD, or assurance deficit disorder, is, is that um, a person who has doubts about their salvation is not going to, be, to grow in the Christian life, not going to be motivated to grow in the Christian life. If you haven't settled those foundational issues, then you're not motivated to go on any further. They're not, uh, someone who has ADD is not motivated to serve in the Christian life. It just seems to zap any desire to serve or to witness. There's no motivation to witness. Uh, how, can you, how, could, how could you sell cars if you, if you knew that the dealership sold lemons and didn't work? How can you offer somebody something that you're not sure of yourself? It takes away people's joy. When they wonder, am I a Christian, am I not? Am I in the family of God, or am I not? Now, those are some of the effects of ADD. Let's talk about some of the causes. And again, one of the causes might be that a person is never saved at all. They don't know if they're saved because they're not saved. Uh, the gospel wasn't explained clearly to them. They never really believed in it. And by the way, I believe that assurance really is a part of faith. And uh, you really can't be saved until you really know that you've trusted in Christ. 
but that can so easily and soon be perverted. And one of the ways it's perverted is by a confusing gospel. Um, people might believe in Jesus Christ, and yet other conditions are tacked on, either then or later, that cause them to doubt. Whenever it is left up to our performance or our commitment or our works or uh, the amount of our repentance, we will always have to wonder if we did enough. And we've talked quite a bit about that. It can be a confusing gospel. It could be false, faulty teaching that they run into. And I think this is what really happens with some people. They hear the gospel and they believe and they're rejoicing. And then they run into someone who just steals it away by some bad teaching, like the teaching that you can lose your salvation, for example. And, oh, no, I can lose my salvation. But, but they're never really given a list. So they wonder, are my sins on that list? I kind of would like to see the list myself. Nobody's ever produced it. One lady that uh, we got to know um, goes to a particular church that teaches this way, but she, this was her testimony to us. She said when she was a teenager, she became a Christian. She believed in Christ as her Savior. And she was rejoicing. Her life changed. She was so bubbly and so happy uh, for, for about six months. She was just floating on air because of her newfound knowledge of Christ. And then an elder lady in the church came by and she said, well, you know, you got to be careful because you might lose it. And she said, she, she just went like this. And now she started wondering, what would it take to lose it? And the funny thing is, she's still in that denomination, has been in it all of her life. Faulty teaching can make us doubt our salvation. Then there's a the teaching that doubts are healthy. There are those who teach that it is Good for you to question your salvation, to examine yourself. And uh, the verse they often use is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'd like you to turn to that verse. I'm just going to address that very quickly because this is the verse they always go to and perhaps came to your mind when I, whenever I refer to this issue of doubts are healthy. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. And you've heard this verse where Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified or don't stand the test? Now taken by itself, it appears that that verse could be saying, look, you need to really look inside yourself to see if you're a Christian. But it's an amazing thing what looking at the context will sometimes do for you. Not only the immediate context, but the context of the whole books of First and Second Corinthians. In the Corinthian church, Paul ran into a problem, as I mentioned before, that, that uh, these super apostles had come in, so eloquent in, uh, in, in their words, and were great orators, and people were siding with them and uh, against Paul because he wasn't that good of a speaker. And they began, these super apostles were questioning Paul's credentials, and he's forced to defend himself through 1 Corinthians. And it really reaches a climax near the end of 2 Corinthians where he, he talks about, um, for example, in chapter 10, he talks about his authority. Uh, in chapter um, 11, he talks about uh, the other false apostles, and uh, he reluctantly boasts about himself. And he says, look, whatever they are, I am more. 
talks about how he was shipwrecked and so forth. But he kind of goes into a counter mode. He's not boasting about all the great things he's done. He's boasting about all the troubles he's had. In chapter 12, he talks about how he had a vision. And um, he does it in a very humble way. Whereas the super apostles were probably bragging about their visions. Then he comes to uh, verse 11, 12, 13. He says, I did the signs of an apostle among you. And then at the end of chapter 12, his proof is for his authenticity is the fact that he loves the church. They don't love you like I love you. So Paul is just building argument upon argument upon argument that he is not what they say they are. He is a genuine apostle. They are the false prophets. And then we come to chapter 13. And he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. I'm looking at verse 1 now because we want to build a little context. Third time I'm coming to you, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. In other words, you should know for sure now who I am because you've seen me two, three times. This will be the third time. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward us. He's defending this fact that they're saying, oh, he's just a weakling. He doesn't have the power of God. And he's saying, yes, I am weak, but my power is in God. So you better be careful when I come to you. My validation is not in what I do and say. It's in God and his power and his gospel. Then we come to verse 5 and he says, examine yourselves. And I'm going to emphasize it this way. Examine yourselves as to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't test me. I've proven myself. In fact, he says, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, that's a rhetorical question. And what is the answer he expects from them? Of course. Of course you're in Christ. Unless you're disqualified, unless you're really not a believer. But I trust that you will know that we're not disqualified. We are our believer. Paul is simply saying, it's, his argument is simply this. You're examining me. You're, you're questioning me and my authenticity and my authority. And I've just told you all the reasons I'm a genuine thing. And here's the biggest reason of all. Are you a Christian? Yes, you are. Who preached the message to you? I did. So how do, you, how do you know I'm real? Because you're real. He's not telling them to look into their heart and see if they really believe. He's simply asking a rhetorical question. Aren't you Christians? Of course you are. Well, who preached to you? I did. So I must be the real thing. So he's not inviting them to some introspective life of misery and looking within. And doubts aren't healthy, my friends. Doubts are not healthy. Um, to examine the roots of our faith is good. To learn more about the gospel and all that it stands for is good. But to question ourselves constantly about whether we've believed or not, we've believed enough, is not healthy. Let's say that I were to come home and my son's watching TV and I say, Son, did you mow the lawn like I asked? Yeah, Dad, I did. You're my son. I'm so proud of you. Son, did you do all your homework like I asked you to? Yes, I did. You're my son. That's my boy. Well, son, did you feed the dogs? Oh, no, I didn't do that. Well, gee, I don't know if you're my son. My son would feed the dogs. Did you clean up your mess in the garage? No, Dad, I didn't do that. 
Wow, I don't, you must not be my son. And what kind of atmosphere is that in which to raise children? Would it be healthy? Would they be motivated to grow, to get to know you better, to enjoy their place in the family, to find significance, confidence in living? And again, I said this, but you know, we need to be careful how we raise our children because that's the message we give them. If you were a Christian, you would do this. Instead of saying, you're a Christian, you know you should do this. World of difference in the approach that we take. So faulty teaching can cause people to have uh, assurance deficit disorder. And then, uh, I don't want to get psychological on you, but there frankly are different kinds of personalities that are more introspective than other personalities. And uh, you know, these are the poets among us. These are the, many times the musicians among us and the artists among us. Beautiful people, but people that have learned to get in touch with their feelings and see things a different way. But they're often the people that are so in touch with their feelings that they're always asking themselves how they feel. And out of that comes beautiful poetry, but out of that also comes doubts. I knew a wonderful lady like this in our church. She, she wrote beautiful poetry, uh, in, uh, and, and yet she was always wondering, you know. She, she, would, she, would call me, <laughs> she would call me up sometimes and say, Charlie, do you still love me? <laughs> As a pastor, you know, she, Charlie, do you still love me? I'm not sure God loves me. And I, sometimes it was, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And then we get her back on the right track. But she's always living by her feelings. You know, introspective people and, and uh, perfectionists, another personality type of, uh, I'm a reformed or recovering perfectionist myself. And the perfectionist would tend to say, did I get it right? Did I do it exactly right? And that's why, you know, I read one tract. And it, when, I, when I was, in the summer I became a Christian, I'd read one tract and it said, believe. So I said, okay, I believe, Lord. And then I pick up another tract and it says, you got to confess all your sins. I said, okay, I confess everything. Another one says, you got to get down on your knees and cry. And so I do that. I mean, I got to get it right. I'm a perfectionist. And then there's the paranoid personality, you know. Uh, they just don't believe things. Is it really true, skeptical? Can I really trust that? I'm having second thoughts. I mean, so personality has a lot to do with it. I met a person one time at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a preacher now. He's got things straightened out. But he said, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary to find out if I was a Christian. I was just taken aback by that. I couldn't believe that someone would pay all that tuition. <laughs> I guess if it's important enough, yeah, do all that Greek and Hebrew to find out if you're a Christian. I, I said, Brian, I said, Brian, you must be an inter introspective person. He said, Charlie, I could draw you a map of my psyche. See, I don't even know that I have a psyche. And this guy, he can draw a map of his psyche. That's how introspective I am. But he was, he's just that way. He knows how he feels and what he thinks and all this stuff. I don't spend all that time looking within. But that's how some people are. And it causes them to doubt their salvation like this poor fellow did. He's got it all straight now. He's a wonderful grace person now up in North Dakota. Some people have doubts about their salvation because of low self-esteem. Nobody can love me, and that includes God. And it often has to do with the way they're brought up, their surroundings, their environment. Many, many times it has to do with the relationship with their father or parent. I had a lady call me one time at church, and she was saying, I'm just wondering, how can I know for sure I'm a Christian? And um, this is just out of the blue, a stranger. And I said, well, have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know that he came as God the Son? He died for your sins and 
And have you placed your faith in him? Oh, I, I've done that, yes. But I'm just not sure that I'm a Christian. I just feel like I, I need to have God put his arms around me and hug me because I'm not sure that God loves me. She was just crying on the phone. And I, 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 the Lord led me to ask a question that, frankly, I, I asked quite a bit when I in counseling situation. I said, tell me about your relationship to your father. You know, my father was an alcoholic. And he worked second shift, so he'd come home late at night. And uh, if you found one little thing wrong in the house, he'd be drunk and he would just start beating us because we left a dirty dish in the sink or something like this. We never knew if he was going to come home in a good mood or a bad mood. It was usually in a bad mood. She said, sometimes I remember waking up being held by the arm, dangling, and he was whipping me with a belt. That's how I woke up, she said. I tried to point her to the fact, well, obviously you have some problems with self-esteem and accepting someone's love because you didn't have it. It was so capricious, unpredictable in your home. When the person that God gave you to demonstrate what God was like was so completely different. And there, within all of this is another mini-sermon to fathers. How, how God has given us to our families to be their, the children's first idea of what God is like. You know, when your children are two, three, four years old, they think you're God, right, Dad? They think you're God, and it's fun. You can enjoy that for a while. <laughs> and then, then they find out that the deity has feet of clay after a while. Teenagers think you're the devil, but it's nice being God for a while. That's why God has fathers in the family. To give people a sense, of, give children a sense of significance and who they are, and if and if we blow it, provoking them to anger, exasperating them, and not accepting them unconditionally, then they have problems with their heavenly father. But the cure for all of that is to point people to the heavenly father and say, you know, your your earthly dad might have blown it, but your heavenly father, he loves you perfectly, and he would never reject you, and he would never be capricious in his love. And for some of us who grew up with dads that were less than perfect. That's been our salvation, is, is coming to know a Heavenly Father in that way. So low self-esteem can be a problem. Another reason for uh, ADD is, I think, is persistent sin. A Christian who lives in persistent sin or can't shake a habit begins to wonder, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian. And guilt seems to cloud their thinking, and certainly Satan uses that as a tool. And that's why in, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul wrote to them, look, you deal with this man who's having sexual immorality with his stepmother. You deal with him, or I'll come and deal with him when I'm there. And then he writes 2 Corinthians, he says, 2 Corinthians, and it's obvious in chapter 2 that the man has repented. And he said, now restore this man uh, to your fellowship and love him because we're, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. Satan can get in there and use that guilt and cloud that man's thinking and paralyze him with doubts about his acceptance with God. And so persistent sin, I think, opens us up to those kind of satanic schemes and just the, the fact of a, a condemning conscience that says, boy, I wonder if I really am a Christian. And then another cause of ADD would be severe trials, I think. People get in the midst of something, an illness or something, and they say, God really can't love me. I can't be a child of God if I'm going through this. He's letting me go through this. He would never let me be bullied like this at school. I must not be a Christian. He wouldn't let me live in such poverty. He wouldn't let me have this kind of illness in so early in life. God must not love me. I must not be a Christian. But what do we do for people like this? I think the answer is obvious. It's what we've been saying all week again, right? These are just some applications of what we've been saying. Direct them to the person of Christ. 
Direct them to the person of Christ. Don't direct them to their faith or their feelings. Direct them to the object of their faith, person of Jesus Christ. Show them his trustworthiness. The issue is, is Jesus trustworthy or is he not? Are his promises credible or are they not? In John chapter 5 and verse 24, we've heard this verse before. You see, after nine times of speaking, I'm repeating myself. <laughs> I'm just going in loops here, but uh, with different applications. But this is all right. In John chapter 5 and verse 24, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And the question is simply, do you believe this promise? Do you believe this promise that God has made? The question is not so much, much what you believe. The question is who you believe. And if somebody says, well, I have trouble believing this, or I have trouble believing that I'm, I'm a Christian, or, it, it, instead of saying, well, what do you believe? Maybe a good question to ask them is, who is it exactly you're having trouble believing? Because God wrote this. You're having trouble believing what God said when he promises eternal life to those who believe. Get them better acquainted with the object of their faith. Maybe they need to know more about who Jesus is and his love and his acceptance and his unconditional grace before they can really understand. But yeah, maybe I really am saved because Jesus really would keep his word to me and give it to me as a free gift. You know, they say when um, I read an article about the, the musician uh, Michael Jackson, um, that's an oxymoron, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, the musician Michael Jackson he, uh, he was afraid of flying and I think it was uh, uh, American Airlines took him on board a plane and, and they, sh they showed him how the cockpit worked they showed him how the instruments worked uh, they walked him through the whole plane and got him well acquainted with it showed him how reliable all the, the fail safes they had in a plane and he got over his fear of flying because of that because he became acquainted and, and saw that the plane was trustworthy. And maybe someone has been introduced to Christ, believed in Christ, but they don't know that much about him and his trustworthiness, his credibility, his, his love, his compassion, his grace, and his mercy, and, um, and all these different doctrines. It's just a matter of growing in their knowledge of Christ. Teach them that assurance is a birthright of every Christian and that we do have the right to know that we're saved. First John chapter 5 would be the first passage we would go to to show them that it is your privilege as a child of God to know for certain that you're saved. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Again, we're pointing to the object of the faith. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. To know that you have eternal life is something that John says is, is our right. There are some who say, well, it's presumptuous for me to say that I have eternal life. No, it's not presumptuous. It's presumptuous to say that you're not sure God keeps his word. But it's not presumptuous to know that you have eternal life. That's what God wants you to know. And we can't really go anywhere in the Christian life until you do know that. What does it mean to know? It means to know. It's, it's, the, it's the Greek word oida here, which is the common word to know something. I had a couple ladies knock on our door, and, uh, and we invited these young ladies in, my wife and I, and, and we began talking to them. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. 
they were out witnessing for Jehovah, I guess. And we sat down in the living room, and uh, one of them, the leader, was named Twyla. And I began, as I usually do, to start to plant these doubts. You know, are you sure you're saved? You've knocked on enough doors, you know? And, well, you really can't know that you're saved. I said, well, it says in the Bible that uh, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. I showed her in the Bible. I don't tell these people that I'm a preacher either, because I heard Jehovah's Witnesses think preachers are demon-possessed. So I didn't want her running out on me. And um, I said, these things are written that you may, you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I said, right there, it says that you can know. Do you know? Well, no, no, it doesn't really mean that you know. It just means that you, you kind of hope that you do. I said, but, I said, no, the, the word in the Greek means no. And I, I said, let me get my Greek Testament. So I went and got my Greek <laughs> Testament, and I opened it up, and I showed, the, the Greek letters for oida are, are close enough that it looked like English, and O-I-D-A, at least you can pronounce it, you know. The delta looks a little different, but um, uh, I said, there's the word oida. It's just the common word for no. You know, she looked up at me and she said, that's neat. Would you teach me Greek? <laughs> and, I, and I have to say that in, in my many years of ministry, I've never had anyone ask me to teach them Greek, except a Jehovah's Witness. Shame, shame on us Christians, <laughs> even though I am going through Greek with my assistant uh, in the church. So show them that um, assurance is their birthright. And then I just want to close with uh, looking at Romans chapter 8. Not only direct them to the person of Christ, but direct them to the finished work of Christ. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. That the work that God has done for us through Jesus Christ is finished. And this wonderful climactic section to uh, uh, chapter 8, he says, uh, beginning in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Uh, what does he mean? What do we say? How do we respond? Respond to what? Well, he's just talked about how we're all destined for glory and that uh, God is going to work it all together for good so that we're all glorified and become like Christ and, and we're all going to be there. And Paul is saying, this is so, so good. It's too good to be true. What can we say to it? And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, you're going to notice four questions in Romans 8, this section. And the first question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And his point is that no one can prevail against us spiritually. We who call ourselves Christians, who are Christians. And he answers his own question with another question. So it's really still the first question. It's a rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, if God gave his son for us, won't he see us through to the end? Would he ever just give up on us and walk away when he's invested his son in us? That doesn't make sense. God's going to finish it if he started it with his son. He's not going to walk away with that, from that kind of an investment. If you were going to give, uh, if you were going to give a new car to your, your child as a graduation present, let's say, You'd probably give him the keys and a spare tire, some gas in the tank. And if you're going to give him a car, you'd give him the rest that is necessary to go with the car. If you're going to send your parents away uh, to Paris for a 50th golden wedding anniversary, uh, you wouldn't just buy them a one-way ticket. Well, it might be tempting, but you shouldn't buy them a one-way ticket. 
you'd probably want to get him a nice hotel room and a return ticket and meals and everything. You wouldn't start a gift and not finish a gift. And what Paul is saying is Jesus started, God started the thing. He gave you Jesus. He's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. If you've believed, nothing can prevail against you. Nothing's going to keep God from finishing. And the second question comes in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, who can make any charge stick against us after we've believed? And his answer is, it is God who justifies. He uses the language of the courtroom. God has justified us. Justified means to be declared righteous. He has declared us righteous. He has declared us in the eyes of justice, divine justice, not guilty. We are free to go. And you notice how he mentions who should bring a charge against God's elect. Elect this, this whole process of our justification, it started a long time ago when God chose us to begin with. And not only did he choose us, he justified us. Verse 34, the third, the third question is, who is he who condemns? Who can condemn us? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen and also is at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for, for us. Again, he's using the language of the courtroom. Nobody can condemn us because Christ has already been condemned. There's a thing in law called double jeopardy. Once a person is um, uh, released from a crime, he can't be accused of the same crime and tried for it again. So in effect, O.J. Simpson could say that he was guilty of murder and nobody could do anything about it. It's called double jeopardy. Jesus was already cried for the crime of our sins, and we can't be tried for them. So who can condemn us? Nobody is the answer, of course. And then he talks about Jesus being raised up and accepted by the Father and sitting at his right hand, and his payment was accepted. That's what, that's what I think he's saying here. The resurrection and the seated at the right hand of God shows that, our, that God has accepted his payment. It was satisfactory. So nobody else, we don't have to make that payment again or worry about it. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was truly finished. And there he is praying for us, making intercession for us. The word again comes from the courtroom used uh, of a defense attorney arguing for a defendant. Jesus is our defense attorney. They talked about O.J. Simpson's dream team. We have a dream team in Jesus. He's never lost a case. And when someone brings a charge against us, when Satan accuses us, Jesus says, no, no, that's covered, paid for. That crime's been taken care of. Great to have an advocate, a defense attorney like that. And then the fourth question, which climaxes it, it all, is who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I think that who covers a very broad category, including even ourselves. And he goes on to explore all of heaven and earth and every creature to say there's nothing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You see, see in these kind of situations, when we don't have enough to eat, we don't have food to wear, when we're in danger, when people are out to get us, we start to say, does God really love me? But those kind of trials cannot separate us from God's love. He talks about those who even died for the sake of Christ, yet were not separated from his love in verse 36. And in verse 37, he says, we're more than conquerors because of his love for us. And then in verse 38 and 39, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's saying is, no one, no thing, nowhere, no time can separate us from God's love. No one can come between us and God's love. So even when we fall, the love of God 
will catch us. And when we have that security, then we can have a firm assurance upon which to base our Christian lives, our growth, our service, our witness, our discipleship. You know, uh, back when the Golden Gate Bridge was first built, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world at the time. <clears throat> and um, it cost 30, I think it was 30 some million dollars, a lot of money back then to build it. And it was very perilous because as they worked so high above the bay, the winds were blowing so hard, uh, they had to work slowly and they had to work carefully. And several people fell to, the, to their deaths because of the situation. Then they had an idea. They built a large safety net and they put it under the bridge. And some interesting things happened. First of all, 10 people who fell were saved. The second thing is that work increased 30%. Why? Because people felt confident, assured. It's the same thing in the Christian life. People will not grow, will not serve, will not witness as they should. They will not do it with joy unless they know for sure have settled this issue through faith in Christ. And all that comes from a clear gospel. Because the grace gospel is the only gospel that lets someone know for sure that they're saved. There's a story of a little boy who uh, was lost all night, and they, and they were concerned because there was a large rain and a flood, and they finally found him the next day, and he, was, uh, he had spent the whole night out on a big rock in the middle of a roaring stream around him, and he couldn't get off of it. He spent the whole night out there freezing, and they found him the next day. And they, when water receded, they were able to rescue him. And they said, they said, boy, weren't you, weren't you afraid? And he said, well, I may have been trembling on the rock, but the rock never trembled under me. You see, we may shake and falter in our feelings and our perceptions of things and our circumstances, but when we know that Jesus is the rock, um, we don't need to doubt. And one more story that I think illustrates this very well is a man and a boy were walking and uh, talking about, and his son was talking about, he wasn't quite sure he was a Christian or not. He believed in Jesus, but you know, things in his life had changed and he's feeling different. And, and they came across a nice still pool of water and in the pool was reflected the full moon. And they were just looking at the moon and saying, boy, isn't that a beautiful reflection there? And his father took a rock and threw it in the pool. And suddenly the ripples just made the moon just disappear. And the boy said, what did you do that for? He said, do you see the moon? No. Well, how do you know the moon's still there? Well, it's up there in the sky. You see, we need to point people to Jesus, who is the objective basis of our faith, instead of things that can change, like our feelings and our circumstances. I think that's why the hymn writer said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And the grace gospel is what gives people that solid rock. Thank you, Father, for the time together and reminding us of uh, our rock of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, which cannot be moved. And uh, we thank you that we rest in him and in him alone. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.